Hello, this is Laura Packard and welcome to Care Talk, where we'll be answering your healthcare questions. And also uh, today we have a special guest to talk about COVID-19 and the holidays. So uh, just as a refresher, uh, we cover a bunch of different aspects of our healthcare system, uh, including Medicare, uh, the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid, and more. So regardless of what your healthcare health insurance question is about, we will try to answer it. And uh, if you ask today, we will probably get to you next week. So uh, welcome to our uh, guest today, uh, Alika from Health Sherpa. Can you tell us more about the key deadlines for the Affordable Care Act and getting insured for next year? Absolutely, Laura. Um, the great news is that in every state, there is still time to enroll in coverage for 2022. Uh, the final deadline to enroll in most states is January 15th or even later. Uh, in some cases, you can still pick a plan that'll kick in on January 1st. Um, in most cases, your plan might now kick in on February 1st. Um, the one big exception is Idaho, where the final deadline to enroll in any coverage for next year is December 22nd. So if you're in Idaho, make sure you don't miss that deadline. Um, as you can tell, the exact date can vary um, a little bit depending on what your state you're in. So it's always a good idea to double check the exact. Great, and what should people be doing now if they need health insurance? The main thing is if you don't currently have health insurance, take five minutes, see what you're eligible for. Um, at Health Sherpa, um, speaking for ourselves, we've enrolled more than two and a half million people so far this year, and most of them are paying less than $25 a month. So even if in previous years you haven't qualified for assistance, go take those five minutes, see what you're eligible um, if you Oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, if you already have a marketplace plan um, and you haven't gone back and seen what you have uh, available for 2022, it is really important to know that plans and prices change every year. So your current plan might be a little bit more expensive than it has in the past. Um, so again, even if you're currently enrolled in a marketplace plan, go check what options are available this year, see what those plans and prices look like. You could really save a lot of money by checking your options and perhaps changing to a new plan. Great. And Alika, if people need help figuring out the best plan for them, what should they be doing? How can they get free help? Well, there's lots and lots of help available. You can give us a call at Sherpa. You can reach out to healthcare.gov. Um, go to the website, of course. Um, you can also work with a trusted broker or um, a local navigator group. And I think we have lots of information uh, on the site about that. As well. Yes. So go to act.tv slash care talk, and we have a lot more resources for you. And Diane from Just Care and Social Security Works, if somebody has questions about Medicare and maybe switching plans or they just recently became eligible, where can they go for more help? Well, great question. Um, the uh, annual open enrollment period is closed for Medicare but between January and March, if you've signed up for a Medicare Advantage plan, you do have the ability to disenroll and switch plans. So there's still opportunity for those folks enrolled in Medicare Advantage. Um, you can get free help guiding you to a plan that makes the most sense for you from your state health insurance assistance program. Um, that's sometimes called your SHIP, you know, State Health Insurance Assistance Program. And um, there are volunteers and um, paid staff there, independent, unbiased, who can help you choose a plan. And you can go online again to the Care Talk website and find the number and website for your local ship. Great. And our first question comes from Macomb County, Michigan. Does Medicare pay for the shingles shots? 
Diane? Okay, great question. Medicare pays for a slew of preventive care services. And at some point we should go talk through all of them. But for right now, um, yes, Medicare does pay for the shingle shot. Uh, it's really important to get it. In fact, the CDC recommends that everybody 60 and over get a shingles vaccine. Um, Medicare covers it, though, under Part D, under its prescription drug benefit. And so um, your Part D plan can advise you on the lowest cost way to get that shingles vaccine. Uh, so be sure to contact them so you minimize the cost of getting. Great. And Alika, what about somebody on the Affordable Care Act? Uh, does that cover the shingles shot? Yes. ACA plans um, are also required to cover um, many recommended immunizations, including shingles. Um, so again, uh, to Diane's point, there are so many preventive care services that the ACA plans cover um, at no cost, even before you've met the deductible. Um, so we can we can maybe talk about more of those at another time, but um, lots available um, even before you've met your deductible for the year. Great. And our next question is from Joyce uh, about uh, the Medicare Advantage plan. Uh, she has it for nearly 12 years and loves it. She had a back surgery and hip replacement surgery and insurance paid for that. So she says, know your policy and what it will and will not pay. And that SHIP can help you understand it completely. So you have no surprises. And Medicare Advantage policy might not be for everyone, but it's been good for her. Uh, Diane, what, what do you have to say about that? Well, I... I would have to say this. Uh, it's so great that uh, you have um, a good Medicare Advantage plan, um, but unfortunately, you can't know ahead of time when you're choosing a plan whether that plan is going to cover the care you need at a price you can afford. And lots of people who sign up for Medicare Advantage plans end up picking plans that uh, deny their care inappropriately, that um, circumvent their treating physician's um, opinion about the care they need, um, that charge a lot uh, in co-pays, that create lots of administrative hurdles and barriers to care. Um, usually it's people with costly conditions that have the greatest problems and who end up wanting to leave their Medicare Advantage plan. But I don't think it is possible to know ahead of time whether the plan that you choose is going to cover the care you need when you need it at a price you can afford. And that's just because each plan has its own rules about what is medically necessary care. Um, and those are proprietary, meaning that they don't have to share those. And they're often very different from what traditional Medicare, the government administered, program for Medicare um, covers. So for example, after a hip replacement, traditional Medicare might cover 15 visits so that you can walk better. But if you're in a Medicare Advantage plan, it may be that they'll only cover five visits. And those are the kinds of um, issues that you can't know ahead of time. Okay. So you would just say, be careful and read the fine print and maybe talk to other people with that policy and see if they're happy. I think the I think that last point, talking to other people, if they're happy, and maybe even talking to your doctor about whether the doctor feels that he or she is able to provide the care that uh, patients need. Um, but unfortunately, the fine print isn't going to tell you. <laughs> 
And our next question is from Josh. Uh, he says, even though universal health care is supported by the majority of United States citizens and the U.S. is the only developed country that doesn't have universal health care, it's currently not law. Why do you think this is, Diane? Why don't we have universal health care? I think increasingly what we're seeing is that the corporate power of you know people, players in the healthcare industry is so enormous. There's so much money and so much ability to influence members of Congress and the White House uh, that uh, we can't seem to move the needle, even on some of the most you know horrifying aspects of the healthcare system. So, for example, it for for 30 plus years we've been trying to get congress to negotiate drug prices um this is something that's pretty fundamental it's what allows people to be able to afford drugs in other countries regulated drug prices whereas in this country we don't have that and the market means allowing drug companies to set their own prices and congress allows it so unfortunately i think the answer is that the powerful healthcare industries, be it the pharmaceutical industry, the hospital industry, the durable medical equipment industry, medical device industry, um, they all have so much power and influence over Congress that it's very hard to affect change and get everybody guaranteed affordable health care, which is what, of course, we all know. Mm-hmm. And our special guest, Justin Lowenthal of Doctors for America and Doctors in Politics. Uh, did you want to weigh in on this, too? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I agree completely with what Diane just said. I'll just add that from a historical perspective, um, the U.S. got to where it is partially because we framed healthcare and health coverage as a an employment benefit. Um, we, because of wage stagnation and labor um, stagnation, ended up um, tying uh, insurance coverage to employment, and I think that became so entrenched um, and so tied to the labor force and the job market and just the economy that it's very very hard to disentangle. Um, Ultimately, as people philosophically see health coverage as a benefit and not as a human right um, and a benefit that's tied to their to their work. And so and something that is so critical that um, they cannot move to a new job or take a risk of, of opening a, a, a small business. Um, I think it, it, it's so entrenched in both policymakers and and people's minds that that's just how we conceive of um, health coverage. Um, and and access in America that um, it's just a very, very hard thing. And welcome, Justin. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, we asked you on specifically to talk more about COVID and the holidays, since uh, so many of us are traveling or will be traveling, are with family that maybe we haven't seen in a couple years. Uh, And, you know, some of us are immune compromised and uh, some of us uh, maybe are seniors. And so, Tell us what's going on with COVID and what we need to know to protect ourselves. Absolutely. Um, and I am welcome any and all questions the, the other uh, panelists have uh, today. Um, without burying the lead, I, I would just like to say first that the most important steps that you can take this holiday season are to get your booster shot. If you have not already gotten a booster shot, um, especially if your first dose of the vaccine was a Johnson & Johnson vaccine, getting that second dose of a, of, of a vaccine is even more critical. 
But now with the Omicron variant quickly spreading across the world and definitely in the United States, um, we're finding that even uh, more so than before when we approved booster shots for the general public uh, out of concern for the Delta variant, um, even more so now with Omicron, getting a booster shot, even if you've gotten both doses of Pfizer is um, critical. Um, so first and foremost, getting that booster shot, um, also getting your uh, flu shot, your influenza shot. Um, and then in terms of what to do this holiday season, um, I think holiday gatherings, gatherings with family and friends, particularly given the last two, two and a half years are so critical to um, my mental health, to, to our family and friends' collective well-being, that I think there's, there's no reasonable guidance to say that, that folks should um, cancel uh, travel or holiday gatherings just because of the Omicron variant, for example. Um, but there are steps that you can take to protect yourself and protect your loved ones. I think um, in terms of before traveling, uh, limiting the amount of sort of optional social gatherings, um, indoor gatherings at places like restaurants, uh, movie theaters, bars, uh, limiting those and, and, and trying to keep your sort of social circle to a minimum, especially in the, in the week or two before traveling. I realize it's December 20th now, so for at least the next few days. Um, I think also um, before leaving, consider getting yourself tested, um, particularly if you can access a rapid antigen test that are available um, unevenly throughout the United States. It is getting better, but I know it is very, very difficult for some people to access or afford those tests. Um, but there are tests that are becoming increasingly available at big box stores, um, Costco, at Walmart, as well as pharmacies. Um, and so having several of those tests at home um, for you and your family to take before traveling or to take, obviously, if you have um, some symptoms, um, I think is, is a great step. Um, traveling, uh, if you're traveling by plane or, or, or train um, and want to uh, increase your protection, I think upgrading your mask from a simple cloth mask to a surgical mask or an N95 or KN95 mask um, is a reasonable step to take. Um, we can talk more about the nuances of masking if, if that's of interest to, to people. But I think um, the the first, uh, first thing to remember is that planes and, and trains are well-ventilated uh, and filtered interior spaces. They're no more dangerous than most other interior spaces might be. And so what's most critical to you um, is having that booster shot protection and then um, having a good mask um, to protect yourself and protect those around you in case you're asymptomatically carrying um, uh, the uh, one of the variants. Um, and then the last thing is when, once you get to wherever you're traveling to, um, taking steps to reduce everyone's risk, making sure everyone at those gatherings is has their booster shot and has their flu shot, and if they don't, encouraging them to get it, um, making sure that um, especially if there are children there, that all of the adults are, are boosted and if the children who are eligible get those vaccines as well. Um, and then increasing the ventilation in those spaces and the protection in those spaces to the extent possible. This is midwinter, so the vast majority of the country is not going to feel terribly comfortable moving their Christmas celebrations outdoors, um, but cracking windows and potentially, if possible, purchasing um, HEPA filtration units for the home um, especially if you're hosting one of those gatherings, really uh, staging your house to protect the most vulnerable person in your family, I think is the most um, reasonable step to take. 
Um, the last thing I want to say, and then I'd love to, to open it up to questions, there's a lot of um, information out there about the Omicron variant, what it is, what it means for all of us. Um, I think there's a couple things to understand. The Omicron variant is just like Delta and some of the others before it, um, an evolution of the original um, SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, this Omicron variant um, is unique because it has more than uh, 30 to 40 consequential genetic mutations that make it a little bit different in terms of how it uh, infects cells in the human body and what it might do to cause um, illness and what it might do to transmit to other people. Um, what we have seen with this variant is that it is uh, more transmissible and it moves more rapidly. So it um, for every uh, person it infects, that person is likely to infect three to 3.5 other people, even if they are vaccinated. Um, and this is in some real world data that we're just now getting and just now understanding. But that is a number that is much higher than we've seen even with the Delta variant. Um, there are some uh, reports or were some reports initially from South Africa that it was less, um, it was less likely to cause severe illness in those that it infects. But an important caveat there um, is that the people who were studied for that data were generally young, healthy, vaccinated people. So this idea that it's uh, less uh, potentially serious or less deadly um, may not apply to a lot of the public uh, in the United States, those who are either unvaccinated or around unvaccinated people because of their um, work or because of their families. Um, those who are older, those who are immunocompromised, that may not apply. To them. Um, in terms of catching the virus, it um, we uh, the general sort of rule of thumb is that if you uh, what you thought of as being fully vaccinated, quote unquote, two months ago for Delta, having two uh, shots of Pfizer or Moderna, for example, um, you can think of Omicron as sort of removing one of those doses or one of those barriers, and this is why we are sort of encouraging boosters so much more now with um, the Omicron variant. We do find that Omicron um, is much better at evading the immune system, even if you're vaccinated with Pfizer or Moderna, but the booster really boosts, as the name suggests, your protection. Um, the good news, however, is that um, it does seem to have more trouble causing severe disease um, in most people. Um, and that's as a result, I think, of the vaccines. And that makes sense uh, from an evolutionary perspective. That a, a virus would want to be more infectious and replicate itself, reproduce itself more and more, but not cause such severe illness that the host that it infects um, gets sick and, and even potentially dies. So um, I think what we're most worried about with Omicron is its potential to basically break an already overwhelmed healthcare system. And we're seeing some evidence of that happening already post Thanksgiving. Um, and we're really, really worried about its potential to do that um, after the holidays, mostly because even if it is causing less severe illness uh, proportionally, it may infect so many more people that will still have a huge spike in hospitalizations and hospitals are already facing staff and funding shortages, staff attrition and burnout. And um, I think it behooves all of us to protect ourselves, protect our loved ones, and also protect our communities and our healthcare systems as much as we possibly can. So I'll mm -hmm. stop there. I would love to take questions from you guys. Well, Alika, you had a question about rapid testing. I do. So Justin, thank you for all this great information. Um, one question I have is I'm, you know, visiting family uh, for 
the holidays, as many of us are. I was lucky enough to get a big stash of rapid tests before uh, I came out. Um, what's your best advice on um, how to use rapid tests, how to interpret them? Um, I've heard people say if you test positive, um, you're infectious, and maybe if you're negative, you might still be infected, but not able to spread it. So would love to hear your take on that. Yeah, so rapid tests. Um, so just stepping back, there's uh, basically two types of tests or two buckets of tests that we think about. Um, these rapid tests are what, are what are known as antigen tests. They're actually looking for the protein that's on the surface of the virus, the spike protein, for example. Um, and because of that, they are um, very, very good at detecting the, the um, presence of that protein, but sometimes can detect um, falsely, de falsely uh, come up positive because they're um, detecting something that may look like that protein, but is you know, actually a different virus or, or something else entirely. Um, and they can come up negative, particularly if you've only very recently become infected um, or if you're, um, you've been infected sort of so long ago that you're, even if you were asymptomatic the entire time, you're just so far out from your infection that it is no longer, um, there's no longer enough of that protein. Um, the other type of test, the one that's used in hospitals and by doctor's offices is called a PCR test, and that detects the genetic information in the virus that um, is much more sensitive at picking up any infection at all, regardless of where in the cycle. Um, in terms of interpreting them, I would say, and using them, I would say that it is a really great idea to test yourself um, bef before seeing loved ones. I think the closer you can test yourself to the time when you're seeing loved ones, the better. Um, so if you don't have any symptoms, you're not worried about having been infected by a close contact and you can test yourself within a day or two or even within a few hours of going to a family gathering and that test comes up negative you should be pretty feel pretty good you should feel pretty confident that you're um either you, you don't have uh uh SARS-CoV-2 um infection or if you do it's at such a low low level um that you're not a risk um, to, to transmit it to other people, particularly if everyone around you is also boosted and vaccinated. Um, so I think that's one potential use of those antigen tests. Um, obviously, there's false positives and false negatives to worry about there. But again, if you don't have a close contact and you're not having any symptoms, you can. I think if you're using it um, to determine whether you've been infected by somebody around you who you know has already tested positive, um, then you have to think a little bit more about when to take that test. So the guidance um, with the previous variants has been, you know, if you um, know you were exposed either by a household contact or somebody locally, you were told by contact tracers or they told you, waiting four or five days for that incubation period to really take hold before testing yourself is pretty critical because if you test too early, even if you were exposed and infected, the level of those proteins in your body may not cause the test to become positive. So really waiting four or five days um, is, um, is helpful to, to feel more confident. Um, we're seeing with Omicron that that interval might be shorter because Omicron's what's called incubation period might be shorter. So that may be even two or three days with the Omicron variant. Um, but that's something to keep in mind if you're using it in that way. Okay. And Diane, uh, you had some questions about masks and masking. Yes. Um, I just wanted to piggyback a little bit off of Alica's question though. And, and Justin's answer in terms of waiting, if you think you've been exposed, because I guess the question would then be um, if you wait and you're around loved ones um, and you haven't tested 
but you've just been exposed, that could pose a serious risk. So I just want to follow up on that and ask a second question, which is I've been told um, that it's good to take two rapid tests um, within 24 hours of each other just to make sure to sort of double check um, on that. So I'd love your thoughts on that. And then with masks, um, the question I would have is um, sort of how important it is to wear a K95 or an N95 mask versus like a bandana. And especially if you're indoors, you've tested negative to your rapid test, but now you're with family. Should you be wearing masks indoors with family, even if you test negative? Um, um, you mentioned um, having a lot of ventilation. Should the windows be open? If, you know, that kind of question. And then finally, last question has to do with, um, if you've taken the Johnson Johnson test, we've been hearing that it's not as effective as the Pfizer and the Moderna tests. And I just wondered your thoughts on whether when people are getting second or third tests, they should be switching over to Moderna and Pfizer. Sure. Um, so I think uh, with regards to the first question about what to do while you're waiting to be tested, I think the guidance generally is if you're told um, or if you find out from a, a family member, a friend, a, a colleague, or from a contact tracer or a public health organization that you've potentially been exposed, um, they will give you guidance on what to do. They may require you or guide you to take these sort of more official tests, in which case just following that guidance, um, if it's from a, a, a public agency, is, is what you need to do and not sort of overthink the at-home tests. But if it is like a family member or a friend who's informally told you and you know when you were exposed to them, I think what uh, makes the most sense is just to stay home, try to isolate yourself as much as possible um, uh, and basically self-quarantine for that three, four, five-day period and then take that rapid test and see um, and potentially take two tests. And I'll get to that in a second, but take that rapid test, see if it comes up positive or negative and then go from there with confirming via a more official test or with self-isolating and monitoring. Um, in terms of two tests, um, you know, in the testing testing world, um, like I said, if you're using it basically to screen yourself um, and you don't have symptoms, you don't know of any contacts, and that test comes up negative, I think a single test can make you reasonably confident. Um, but taking two tests is um, a reasonable step. And obviously, um, if they both come up negative, that gives you even more confidence um, in terms of the exact numbers on that. Um, it, it varies a little bit test by test. But um, if you're using it for screening, I think um, just that single test is is perfectly fine and reasonable and more affordable for a lot of people. Um, in terms of masks, so uh, I think it depends on the setting. I think in general, uh, the more people can be using upgraded masks like a surgical mask as opposed to a cloth mask um, or a cloth mask more so than a bandana, I think um, it's sort of in that order of hierarchy. So I think a cloth mask um, that fits a little bit tighter around your face and has a little bit more cloth material gives you more protection than a bandana would and gives people around you more protection. Surgical masks are obviously designed more so for viral protection. And so I think in general, when you can use surgical style masks out in public uh, for, your, uh, for gatherings with family, um, to the extent possible, or when grocery shopping, you know, that's a reasonable thing to do. I think N95s and KN95s, they, they seal more tightly to the face and so are uh, better protection, but also for that reason, a little bit less comfortable to wear on a regular basis. And so using them while traveling, for example, on an airplane or in a very um, visiting a very uh, tight knit sort of indoor social area. 
um, and potentially, um, you know, double masking uh, with surgical and a cloth mask, if, if that's something that you prefer to do. I think those are all really um, good steps to keep in mind. I think with, when you're with family, you know, any additional step is helpful. I think distance is obviously helpful, but is sometimes difficult with family and indoors. I think more ventilation, either with windows or with filtration units, um, is great. And I think if you can keep your mask on, um, especially if you're in close contact or when not eating or drinking, for example, I think that's helpful. Um, but these are all just sort of added steps. And I think if everyone's vaccinated and boosted, um, that's not a perfect protection, particularly against the Omicron variant, but it does help substantially. Um, and then the last question about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it is critical that people get a second dose of something if they got that first Johnson & Johnson dose. If it were me, based on the data I've seen, I would switch to getting an mRNA dose like a Pfizer and Moderna rather than a second Johnson & Johnson dose, particularly with the initial data about the Omicron variant. We have found that Johnson & Johnson provides a lot less protection than even two doses of Pfizer and Moderna do. And given that it is approved uh, by the CDC and by the FDA to switch, mix and match, um, I think seeking out a, an mRNA vaccine like Pfizer or Moderna is probably your best bet. Thanks. And so where would you say you should uh, get masks? Can I just order some on Amazon or buy a pack at the grocery store? Or, you know, should we be concerned about fake N95s still? Uh, how do we know that they're any good? Yeah, so I think... Um, Something to keep in mind is that most sort of big box stores like a Walmart or a Costco or, or a CVS are not generally selling um, uh, non-authenticated or potentially fake masks. On um, if, if they were to become, uh, become aware of that or the public were to become aware of that, that would be, I think, really problematic for those companies. So you can generally um, trust those um, sort of surgical style masks, which is what they generally tend to sell. For N95s and KN95s, I think the bigger websites like an Amazon um, have a pretty robust sort of uh, reporting mechanism for uh, se uh, sellers who are potentially peddling fake masks. Um, but uh, so, so you can trust those bigger websites um, a little bit more than if you were to go to a less known uh, or overseas or smaller uh, store. Um, but I also think, you know, you're looking for those brand names, particularly for the N95 masks, looking for those brand, name, brand names like a 3M, uh, like a DuPont, those sorts of things, um, because they're the, the main manufacturers of those masks. And so as long as the packaging and the um, material, um, uh, the, the stamps and the material are, are similar to what you um, would, would expect from those companies. Um, but like I said, really good surgical masks, um, upgrading from a cloth to a surgical style mask, I think is probably the most important single step in the masking arena that people can take. And uh, how can you um, reuse masks? Can you reuse masks? Yeah, so I think this comes up most uh, most frequently with the N95s and KN95s. We were reusing them at the beginning of the pandemic because of shortages. And I think the shortage is a little bit less critical of an issue now, at least for masks. There are other supply chain issues um, that I'm sure um, have been <laughs> covered either on this show or elsewhere. Um, but with masks, we're a little less worried about, about it. I think with the N95s, um, people are generally using them for shorter periods of time, like air travel. Um, and so as long as it's not uh, deformed, it's still fitting your face snugly. Um, it's not soiled because you've really you know, sweat through it or, or, or that sort of thing. 
Um, reusing it in its in its original form is perfectly fine. Um, there are some methods that have been studied for sort of disinfecting masks, and I won't go into that science. Um, but I think you can use N95 several times, and we do in the hospital. Um, surgical masks, I also tend to reuse more out of convenience. And again, same things. If I can feel like they're um, uh, sealing tightly to the bridge of my nose and around my cheeks and chin, um, and are not um, intolerable to wear because they're deformed or because of um, having been soiled in some way, I think reusing them is fine. But again, those shortages are less critical. And so um, I think uh, as long as you can get the supply that you need, I would just use, use what you have and um, exert reasonable common sense in, in sort of reusing. And I would also uh, just make a shout out now for everybody. Uh, many states are plugged into the national system for uh, COVID alerts. So uh, when I was traveling, I was in Nevada and I was exposed and I got that alert when I was back in Colorado. So it does work across state lines. Not all states are opted in, but it is free. If you have a smartphone, you can go into the settings and opt yourself in, and then you will get notified if you uh, are, are exposed to somebody, if you've spent however many minutes uh, the app uh, detects, uh, and then that person has to report that they have COVID and send it into the system. But that does work across state lines, and especially if you're traveling, uh, you should uh, opt in before you go because uh, it's Good information to have to know if you've been exposed and you probably should get tested. Are there other things, Justin, we should be thinking about before traveling? Um, I think we've covered uh, most of it. I do like the suggestion about sort of those Bluetooth-based smartphone trackers. I, I will say, though, that um, things like contact tracing um, and self-reporting are very variable state to state. Um, and obviously, if people get their own, have their own rapid tests, one of the downsides to that is that there's no centralized reporting of positive rapid tests that people are doing at home. So that so the contact tracing is only going to be as good as what that reporting is like and the the load that these contact tracers are facing. And so one of the big concerns with the Omicron variant is that um, even if it is you know less severe than other variants in terms of the disease it causes, if it causes so many cases um, to rapidly expand across the country, it's just going to be beyond the efforts of contact tracers to be able to keep up with that. Um, and so I think really thinking critically about using those rapid tests, both um, before getting on an airplane and then maybe in the half day or so before, you know, an actual family get together, I think, again, upgrading those those masks, um, but also, you know, having conversations with your family to really make sure that everyone there is vaccinated and boosted, um, who is eligible to, to be uh, so boosted, um, making sure everyone has gotten their flu vaccine and having conversations um, with those who haven't, and really identifying the person who's, uh, or people who are most vulnerable among your family, either the elderly or people with uh, immune compromise of various kinds, and thinking you know, about how we can protect them the best, um, whether that's through how we're designing our gatherings or um, improved ventilation. Um, and just following up as well, you know, if anyone has symptoms um, coming out of one of those gatherings, testing yourself at home and, and trying to isolate to the extent possible until you can test, um, letting family and friends know, letting those contact tracers, those public health agencies know, um, and just being a good citizen and a good you know, community member. I think one of the things that has been, I think, most demoralizing to a lot of people in healthcare during this pandemic is, 
how low this sort of communitarian ethic has been um, among sort of this sharing of risk and sharing of information. And so to the extent we can all be good citizens in that regard, I think it's, um, uh, it would be really great to see us kind of step up and do that. Thanks. And if people have more questions, you know, where, where do you suggest people go uh, f- to get their questions about COVID answered, just to keep reading the news, go to the CDC's yeah. website? So I think for sort of the official uh, line on things like um, booster eligibility, on things like current guidelines on isolation and, and incubation periods of viruses, testing, et cetera, the CDC um, and the FDA's websites are very helpful. Um, I think there have been some news agencies who have done an incredibly good job of covering um, the science and really distilling it and also the current guidance. In particular, I follow the New York Times um, coverage as well as the Atlantic uh, Catherine Wu and Ed Yong have done incredible um, reporting and incredible writing. And so I read basically everything they do, um, they, they put out and would encourage others to do so as well. Um, and then there's a lot of really good organizations, including one of the ones I'm representing today, Doctors for America, but others as well, who have put out really helpful and really well updated questions and answer, question and answer sort of guides. Um, uh, resources and graphics um, about how to identify sources of misinformation online, um, for example, or where to go um, with special cases. For example, if you live in a, an immigrant community and you're worried about um, international travel or, um, uh, you know, for those who are worried about getting their uh, rapid tests uh, reimbursed by insurance, um, those very more particular questions, um, a lot of organizations like DFA, like um, NRC RIM, um, and I can provide this um, uh, these these websites for follow up, um, as well as uh, several um, immunization, um, vaccinate your family, and other immunization um, advocacy organizations have really really great websites, um, TikToks, video clips, things like that that are really worth following. I'm so happy to to send send a resource guide um, to distribute to anyone who's interested. Well, thank you so much. Uh, And we just had a question come in via text, and I'll ask it because I also care about this question. Uh, This person has had both shots and a booster. Uh, They got the booster at the end of July, so it's five months ago. So does anybody know anything yet about whether there is going to be another booster or you know what what do you do when you get to the six month period after your booster because I I got my booster in August yeah so it's a good question I think um, we don't have great data yet on long-term outcomes after a a third dose um, or um, it's actually you know from a scientific standpoint we don't refer to them as boosters in the same way we think about booster shots of like a tetanus um, uh, tetanus shot, for example, just because of the shorter interval between the second dose and the third dose. Um, but for those who have gotten a third dose, we have the data on how Delta and Omicron, um, how they how they perform um, in the short term over the you know the six months we've studied so far, and our protection looks quite good against Delta and even against Omicron with a booster. Um, there have has been talks, depending on how variants continue to evolve about new boosters being needed for better coverage of future variants or um, even endemic or seasonal um, cyclical sort of variants of the disease um, or of the virus, I should say. Um, but we're, we're not at a point yet where um, we have um, 
that was anywhere near prime time. Um, and I think um, it's also really, really premature to, to talk about a second booster and really not a, a good rationale for um, anyone pursuing a second booster just because it's just been such a short time interval. Um, and what probably is most critical we got this third dose because it seems like antibody levels are waning after the second dose, but the first and second doses were so close together that a lot of scientists are saying what may have been better is to spread apart those first and second doses more. And now that the third dose was so far out from the second dose, our protection may be much longer lasting this time around. And so I, I guess the, the um, long and short of it is to, to stay tuned, but for now, get, get your booster, get your families boosted and feel pretty confident um, that you're, you've done what you can in addition to these other public health. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and uh, thank you all of our panelists. And we will be back next week for Care Talk to keep answering your healthcare questions. Thanks. Mm -hmm.